your end time survival plan. Would you stand with me for the reading of the word in Revelation chapter 5, starting in verse 1? John speaking says, And I saw in the right hand of him who sat on the throne a scroll written inside and on the back, sealed with seven seals. Then I saw a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the scroll and to loose its seals? So there's, a, there's the picture here. John sees the father. He sees the Ancient of Days sitting on the throne, and he's holding in his right hand a scroll that has seven seals on it. And he hears a strong angel say, who is worthy to open the scroll and to loose its seals? Verse three, and no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look at it. But one of the elders said to me, do not weep. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has prevailed to open the scroll and to loose its seven seals. And I looked and behold, in the midst of the throne and of the four living creatures, and in the midst of the elders stood a lamb as though it had been slain, having seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. Then he came and took the scroll out of the right hand of him who sat on the throne. Living creatures and the four, the 24 elders fell down before the lamb, each having a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song saying, you are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals for you were slain and have redeemed us to God by your blood out of every tribe and tongue and people and nation and have made us kings and priests to our God and we shall reign on the earth. You may be seated. So you see this picture in heaven that John sees the father with the scroll and no one, it says, no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was worthy to open the scroll or even to look at it. And John wept. He said he just wept much. And, and the angel said, don't weep. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, he has prevailed to open the scrolls, open the scroll and to, to undo its seven seals. Praise God. Jesus Christ, the, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the lamb of God was the only one in heaven or earth or under the earth that was found worthy. Why? Why was the Lamb of God worthy? Because he's sinless. Yes. But the angels were also sinless. Look at what the elders said in verse 9. You are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals. Why? For you were slain. And have redeemed us to God by your blood out of every tribe and tongue and people and nation. Glory to God. Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God, was, is worthy because he's the Redeemer. He's worthy because he came as a volunteer to this earth to put on human flesh and to do what only God in flesh could do. Die as a substitute for our sins. Rise again and give us eternal life through faith in him. He's worthy, not only because he's sinless, but because he's our redeemer, because he's redeemed us back to God and made us a kingdom of kings and of priests that will reign with him on the earth forever. Glory to God. 
by receiving him. It says in John chapter 1, verse 11, he came to his own, but his own did not receive him. He came to the Jewish people, the ones that should have recognized him by all the prophecies in the Old Testament. He came to his own, but they didn't receive him. They didn't see him as the Messiah. They didn't want a suffering Messiah. They wanted a king to come and relieve them from the oppression of Rome. They rejected him. But verse 12 says this beautiful thing, but to as many as received him, to them he gave the right or the power to become the children of God. My friend, if you don't know that you know that you know that you're saved, my friend, make sure that you receive the Son of God. Receive him by faith. Don't try to amend your life by, by finding your own goodness or your own righteousness before God. Bow before him and say, I'm a sinner in need of your salvation and I receive it. By faith in Jesus Christ. It says he gives you power to become a child of God. He makes you that precious seed that's the only thing going from this creation into the new creation. Hallelujah. Friends, what a savior. What a redeeming lamb. And God has committed all judgment to the son. The gentle man of sorrows is also the lion of the tribe of Judah. And he will roar against his enemies. He alone is worthy to take the scroll and he is sovereign over all the judgments that are inside that scroll. All the judgments that are coming on this world, he's sovereign over them. He's the one opening the seals one by one and commencing the judgments. He is faithful and true and he will preserve and gather his precious wheat, that's us, into his barn. No one will touch his harvest, his seeds, apart from his perfect plan. Praise God. What was in the scroll that, with the seven seals that only the lamb could open? I want to talk about the first three seals very briefly. Revelation 6, 1 through 6. John said, Now I saw when the lamb opened one of the seals, and I heard one of the four living creatures say with a voice like thunder, Come and see. And I looked and behold, a white horse and he who sat on it had a bow and a crown was given to him and he went out conquering and to conquer. The rider of the white horse has a bow and a crown. The bow is a weapon of war that sends deadly arrows or missiles far away from where it's launched. He also has a crown, meaning he has authority. He has governance. He goes out to conquer other nations, other peoples. I have heard and believe that this horse and rider speak of a period of time of Cold War. You heard about the Cold War in the 80s and the 70s and in, into the 90s, the Cold War between Russia and the United States, how they built up their, their nuclear uh, arsenals over time because they were always trying to stay one step ahead of, of their adversary, afraid that if they were weak, that they would be taken advantage of, that somehow they would be toppled and fallen. So they, both countries, they weren't, they weren't in a hot war. They weren't firing guns and missiles at each other. They were in a cold war. They were building up their munitions. Listen, if you follow the news at all, and I hope you don't follow it too closely because it's depressing if you watch it too much. But if you follow the news at all, then you know that China has been building up a massive army and a massive navy and a massive arsenal of missiles. Hypersonic missiles, intercontinental missiles. You know, to, to me, I'm not as afraid of their nuclear weapons. 
I'm concerned about their other weapons that could shoot and destroy our aircraft carriers that are in the, in, in the Strait of Taiwan or in the South Asian Sea. See, they have so many missiles that, that if, if an aircraft carrier were to be fired upon, our aircraft carrier and, and the, the other ships around them would be able to defend off many missiles because they have anti-missile hardware and weaponry. But you know what? They have so many missiles that it's like a swarm of bees. Even if you had a defense system that you could, you had this thing that you'd shoot your missiles against bees if a swarm of bees went after you, guess what? If there's thousands of bees, eventually one bee's going to get through. What am I saying? China has built up the strongest navy. Their navy has more ships than ours. Now, I'm not saying their carriers are stronger than ours, but they have more ships. They have more numbers. They, are, they have started a cold war. And the United States is playing catch-up with our military hardware and our military ships. We are playing catch-up. And so are other nations around them. Japan, a pacifist nation since World War II, Limited in, in, their defense, in their defense spending and their defense budget. Limited by uh, agreements with the allies. Has started to build up their own, their own uh, not nuclear, but their own weapons, their own military hardware. They are playing catch up. Why? Because they're afraid. They're afraid of China. That's the truth. Other, other countries in the Pacific doing the same thing. The Philippines, Australia, they are doing the same thing. We are in a time of ex extended, of, ex of ex extreme Cold War. Do you understand that? We are in a time where nations are building up their military stockpiles like, I, like I've never seen. Comparable to World War II. Why do I say that? Because I'm telling you that there, this, this is very possibly what we are beginning to see now. I'm not saying for sure that the white horse has gone forth, but I am telling you that was, is a period of, it's speaking of Cold War, and we are in a time of unprecedented Cold War right now. Listen. Verse 3, and he opened the second seal, and I heard the second living creature saying, come and see. Another horse, this horse fiery red, went out. And it was granted to the one who sat on it to take peace from the earth and that the people should kill one another. And there was given to him a great sword. So this red horse and the rider is given authority to take peace from the earth. This is open war. This is hot war. Do you understand that? And it says, the people will kill one another, and there was given to him a great sword. That great sword is a giant sword, and that represents war. The red horse and his rider bring a time of great discord and hatred by taking peace from the earth. He's permitted by the lamb to do that. And this leads to open war. The great sword shows that war will spread through, the great sword shows that war will spread through the earth. And not only will the rider bring war between nations, but individual people will hate and kill one another. There will be more and more senseless killing in the earth. My friend, I'm not telling you that this is where we are, but I see great parallels between what's happening in the world, what's happening with Russia and Ukraine, what's happening with Israel in the Middle East, and there's concern that this could spread into a greater regional war, that it could spread even into a world war. Verse 5, and when he opened the third seal, 
I heard the third living creature say, come and see. So I looked and I beheld a black horse. And he who sat on it had a pair of scales in his hand. And I heard a voice in the midst of the four living creatures say, a quart of wheat for a denarius and three quarts of barley for a denarius and do not harm the oil and the wine. What is he saying when he says a quart of wheat for a denarius? Well, a denarius was a day's wages. So what he's saying is, you know, a quart is like the size of, you know, like a, a little bit, I think it's bigger than an eight ounce cup, but around there, 10 ounce cup is about a quart. You know, you ever get those quarts of, of half and half, right? It's a, it's a quarter of a gallon. It's not that big of a quantity. He's saying that, that you will have to work all day just to get that quart of wheat. What is that saying? It's saying that, that your work, there's going to be great inflation. There's going to be hyperinflation. What you work for will not produce the amount of food that you need to eat. It means that it's a time of scarcity. Listen, the black horse represents famine. Famine follows war. There will be great inflation and food shortages with the black, the black horse and its rider. Supply chains will be broken. The black horse and his rider bring death to prosperity with scarcity. Friends, I don't know that we're here, but that's what it says is coming. When, when I read these verses, I see striking similarities to our times. We see, we already talked about the nation stockpiling missiles and weapons like I've never seen in my lifetime. We see a great cold war. We see the hot wars. We see Hamas and Hezbollah stockpiling tens of thousands of what? Missiles. Missiles to shoot at their enemy Israel. Listen, the world is fearing that Israel's war will grow wider. So how should we as Christians, when we see these things, how should we respond? Should we just stick our head in the sand and say, eh, just I want to hear good things. I don't want to hear bad things. I don't want to hear what Revelation says is coming. Or do we look in, and, and see these things and pray and say, God, show me what's happening on the earth. Show me in, a con in the context of the scriptures what's happening in the earth. So should we, what should be our end, our end times survival plan? Should we stockpile food? Should we buy land far away from the city? Should we get guns and ammo? Should we make plans to defend ourselves? Listen, I think God is hearing a lot of prayers right now from his people for wisdom and guidance on how to prepare. And I think that's good. We should be asking for wisdom and guidance. And I'm not saying that, that we should not seek practical wisdom and take practical steps as to what we should do in these times. There, there maybe, I'm looking at getting a, a, a food saver. It, just, it, it basically is a, it, it takes the food and it makes it last longer. I think there's some practical things. I think it's wise to have some extra food in your pantry. I think it's wise to have a plan. But friend, I don't believe that's where we, we should live and where we should stay is just thinking about our personal preservation. I believe God has a greater end time survival plan for his people than building bunkers and, and, and doing everything we can to preserve our life. Luke 17, Jesus said, whoever seeks to save his life will what? Lose it. And whoever loses his life will preserve it or find it or keep it. John chapter two, I want to talk to you about God's end time survival plan for you and for me. 
and what that looks like. John chapter 2, verse 1. On the third day, there was a wedding in Cana of Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Now both Jesus and his disciples were invited to the wedding, and when they ran out of wine, the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. And Jesus said to her, woman, what does your concern have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, whatever he says to you, do it. This is the greatest thing Mary said in her entire life. This is possibly one of the greatest sayings in all of Scripture. Whatever Jesus says to you, do it. Listen, friends, I'm trying to tell you what you need in your survival plan, in your survival bag. You need this. Whatever he says to you, do it. Remember what the Father said on the mountain of transfiguration. This is my beloved Son, in whom I'm well pleased. Listen to him. Listen to him. What Mary's saying is in the same exact stream of the Spirit. Whatever he says to you, do it. Verse 6, now there were six water pots of stone according to the manner of the purification of the Jews, containing 20 or 30 gallons apiece. Jesus said to them, fill the water pots with water. And they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, draw some out now and take it to the master of the feast. And they took it. And when the master of the feast had tasted the water that was made wine and did not know where it came from, but the servants who had drawn the water knew, the master of the feast called the bridegroom. And he said to him, every man at the beginning or the beginning of the wedding sets out the good wine. And when the guests have well drunk, then the inferior or the watered down wine but you have kept the good wine until now. Praise God. This, listen, this is the overarching theme of your end time survival plan. Whatever he says to you, do it. Don't overthink it. Don't filter his words through your reason before doing it. Hear what he says, know what he says, and simply and quickly obey him. This is where the miraculous happens. Listen, don't be hindered by embarrassment or how unreasonable his request seems. When do you think that the water turned to wine? When they filled the pots to the brim? Or when they took it, when they took a scoop out and they took it to the master of the, of the feast, the master of the wedding? I don't think it was wine yet when it was still in the, in, the, in the pots until they took it. You see, the miracle happens when we respond in obedience to, by faith. That's when the miracle happens. They could have said, well, I'm going to, this is going to be embarrassing. I'm going to take a cup of water to the, to the master of the feast. This is going to be embarrassing. You know, we do that so many times. The Holy Spirit says, I want you to do this. I want you to move this way. I want you to speak this. And we say, oh, I don't know. That, that, that's embarrassing. Uh, what if you don't come through, God? But when you know that Jesus has spoke to you, just do what he says. You can't fail. The miracle is on the other side. The last wine is not going to be inferior to the first. I want to look at this from a church age perspective. Most people bring out the best at the beginning and then not as good at the end. But the first wine poured out on the early church at Pentecost is not going to be watered down at the end of the age. Many have, have said that good wine was for the beginning of the church, for the early church age. They really needed the power of the Holy Spirit then. But that's not for now. 
But listen, Jesus is going to bring out the good wine at the end. It's not just the beginning. At the end, he saves the best for last. Many are going to be surprised at the glory coming upon the church in the last days. Many in the church who are cessationists, who are afraid of the power of the Holy Spirit, are going to be surprised, and I hope pleasantly so, when the Holy Spirit, the good wine, is poured out in the church again. Haggai 2.9 says, The glory of this latter house shall be greater than that of the former, says the Lord of hosts, and in this place I will give peace says the Lord of hosts. God saves the best for last. Listen, the place of glory and peace is in the latter house. It's in the church. Chaos and fear will mark the world in the last days, but glory and peace will fill the church of the living God. You can't, you can't do this alone, guys. You need the body of Christ you need the others around you to encourage you when you're down, to pray for you when you need prayer. It's in his house. The glory is going to be greater than the glory before. And you're going to have glory and peace. Praise God. Isaiah 50, verse 4 and 5. This has got to be in your survival plan. Mary said, whatever he says to you, do it. But if we're not listening, how can we do what he says? We have to hear the voice of the Son of God. Isaiah 50, verse 4 and 5 says, The Lord God has given me the tongue of the learned, or the tongue of the taught, that I might know how to speak a word in season to him that is weary. He awakens me morning by morning. He awakens my ear to hear as the learned. The Lord God has opened my ear, and I was not rebellious, nor did I turn away. Listen. God opens the ears of those who honor him by coming to him first before all other responsibilities. Isaiah said, he wakes me up morning by morning before I do anything else. And I come and I listen to him. And he's opened my ear to hear his voice. He's opened my ear and he's given me not only an open ear, but he's given me a tongue to speak a word in season to him that is weary. He's given me a tongue that's like bringing a cup of cold water to the person who's dying of thirst. A word of refreshing. A word to the spirit of the man or the woman or the child that is dry, that is struggling, that is hurting. God wants to speak to us so he can speak through us. Words in season. Words of life. Words in season to him that is weary. 1 Peter 4, 7 through 10. Peter says, For the, but the end of all things is at hand. The end of all things is at hand. Then he says this, number one, be sober and watch unto prayer. Friends, we are at the end. We're in the last few moments before Christ returns. We're at the end. Your, your survival plan depends on prayer. Maybe you've got along okay without a prayer life up to this point. You've drifted along. But my friend, things are getting worse. You need to watch and to pray. The end of all things is at hand. You need prayer. You need to develop a prayer life. And I want to tell you, it doesn't have to be some big scary thing. Just ask the Lord to help you. The disciples did it. They said, Lord, teach us to pray. Teach us to pray. Say that to the Lord. Say, God, I, I, if I'm honest with you, I have a very weak prayer life. He knows that. Just be honest with him. 
and say, Lord, teach me how to pray. Teach me how to pray. Your word says pray unceasingly. Well, God, I can't even pray for five minutes. My mind is hither and yon. But teach me how to pray. Give me strength to pray. Help me to pray. Listen, if he did it with those 12 apostles and taught them how to pray, he can do it for you. He can do it for me. And don't put these long time frames on your prayer. Start with 10 minutes. Start with five minutes. Get on your knees in the morning and just go before the Lord or sit in your chair, your favorite chair, and raise your hands up and say, Lord, I'm here. I just want to start with thanking you for all you're doing in my life. And I ask you, Holy Spirit, begin to pray through me. Show me who to pray for. Show me how to pray. Oh, the Lord loves prayers like that. And he will teach you how to pray. He will birth prayer in you. Because a prayer life is not you coming to God with a bunch of a lists of things that you just keep repeating to God. A prayer life really should transform into you saying, God, what do you want me to pray? Would you pray through me? Would you pray for the people that are on your heart for me to pray for? God will do it. We need prayer. We need prayer in our survival kit. Praise God. Verse 8, and above all things, Remember, he said, the end of all things is at hand. You need to be sober and, and have prayer. Be praying. Watch unto prayer. Verse 8, above all things, have what? Fervent charity or love among yourselves, for charity will cover a multitude of sins. Sin is going to abound in the end, guys. We see it already. We see the increase of iniquity. We see the hardening of people's hearts. Listen, people are going to be super stressed, and they will get mean, and they will get ugly. Make sure to pack a lot of fervent charity into your survival kit. Make sure that that's something you're praying about, saying, God, give me your heart of love toward people that are, that are hard and that are mean and that do things to hurt me and hurt the ones I love. Give me that, that super gift of charity, that fervent, burning charity that when someone hurts me, I have the attitude of Christ and I'm like a sponge for their offenses that I just take it and I bring it to the cross and I forgive. We need charity, fervent charity, burning charity, burning love. It will cover people's sins with his forgiveness and it will bring them to Christ. They'll say, I don't, I don't understand how I snapped at you and how you keep loving me. I don't understand. You say, it's not me, it's God, it's his grace. It's his love for me and in toward you. Number Verse nine, the end of all things is at hand. Verse 9, use hospitality one to another without grudging. What? Hospitality? That's a, that's a key thing in my survival kit. When, when the end of all things is upon us, when chaos is upon us, when judgment is here? Yes. Little acts of kindness. Feeding people a meal when you're hungry without wishing you could keep it for yourself. Bringing a meal to someone when it's inconvenient hospitality without grudging is, is essential for your survival plan. You know what hospitality does? It brings fervent charity feet. It brings fervent charity to action. It's caring about people and helping them with pra in practical ways. Listen, God's end goal in his survival plan for you is preserving your spirit. 
It's preserving your spirit. We're worried about preserving our life here. He says, no, child, you're my seed. I'm taking you out of here somewhere else. And yes, I'll bless you. And yes, I'll touch you. And yes, I'll heal you. But I want you to know something. I'm not all about your life here. I'm about your life there. You understand that? And he's about preserving our spirit while we're still here, making us like his son. <clears throat> keeping your heart trusting and tender toward him and not drying up from all the sin around you and from self, an attitude of self-preservation. Verse 10, as every man has received the gift, even so minister the same to one to another as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. Take the gifts he's given you and share it. Serve a meal with others. Serve what God's gift to you. Maybe it's not food or maybe it's, that's not your gift. My wife has a gift of hospitality. She, she loves to make meals for people and serve people when they're, when they're going through something difficult. It's a beautiful thing. But use whatever gift God's given you. Just keep pouring out to others. Meet their needs with the gifts God's given you. <clears throat> Don't be a grudging giver, worrying there won't be enough for you to share. Everything you give out, you give out when you feel empty, guess what? God's given you more. He will resupply what you have poured out. He does it all the time. To give when you have much takes no faith. To give when you're running empty is great faith. And that faith pleases God, and he will preserve you through every tribulation. Luke 6, 38, listen, this is, this is what Jesus put on my heart. This is your end time survival strategy. Give. Give and it will be given to you. Good measure, pressed down, shaken together, and running over will be put into your bosom. For with the same measure that you use, it will be measured back to you. Listen, God is going to call us to give when it makes no sense. God is going to call you to give when your flesh and your reasoning say, retain for yourself, preserve yourself, keep for yourself. Jesus says, give, give, give what I've given to you. And I'll make it so that it's shaken together like I think of a soda can. You shake that soda can and open it up and it just bursts over. He says, I'm going to pour back into you. It's going to be bursting back into your life because I give to those who take what I give them and they give it to others. I keep filling them. Praise God. 1 Kings 17, 1 through 16. I want to just use, give you this illustration. And this is going to show us how we can give when we have less. Give when we have nothing. 1 Kings 17, 1 through 16. And Elijah the Tishbite of the inhabitants of Gilead said to Ahab, as the Lord God of Israel lives before whom I stand, there shall not be dew nor rain these years except at my word. There, here's the setting. Wicked King Ahab had brought darkness into his kingdom by worshiping the false gods of the pagan nations around him. His wife Jezebel encouraged him in departing from the true God. She stirred him up to do evil. So God intervened with the judgment of famine to turn his people back to him. You know, when God judges, it's for the purpose of redemption. The purpose of judgment is to cleanse away evil and to restore righteousness and joy to God's people. So verse 2 says, Then the word of the Lord came to him, saying, Get away from here and turn eastward 
and hide by the brook Cherith, which flows into the Jordan. Sometimes our obedience to God's voice leads us into places of difficulty. God spoke to, to Elijah, now's the time, speak my word to the clouds that they don't rain. And the rain, the rain stopped. And then he said, now you have to go to a place. You got to hide your place. You got to leave your people. You got to go to an isolated place by this river, by this brook. Listen, obeying God doesn't guarantee you things are always going to get better. I want you to understand that. Things may get temporarily worse, but our job is to obey God. God will always feed us where he leads us. Verse four, and it will be that you shall drink from the brook and I have commanded the ravens to feed you there. So he went and did according to the word of the Lord. Just like they filled the water pots, right? Do whatever he, whatever he says to you, do it. That was how Elijah lived. Whatever God said to him, he did it. So he continued in the power of God and continued to hear the word of God. And he went and he stayed by the brook Cherith, which flows into the Jordan. The ravens brought him bread and meat in the morning and bread and meat in the evening, and he drank from the brook. Incredible. When we obey God, he's going to provide. He's going to take care of his people. He's going to take care of those who fear him. So it says, verse 7, And it happened after a while that the brook dried up, because there had been no rain in the land. The water from the brook dried up over time because the word of God told Elijah to speak. And he spoke and that brought the drought. And Elijah saw an essential source of God's provision for him dry up. Not because of disobedience, but because of his obedience. But when one thing dries up, God will lead us to his next source of provision. Know that, friends. Know that you are precious to God. If, if something dries up, he's going to lead you to another source of provision. Verse 8, then the word of the Lord came to him saying, Arise, go to Zarephath, which belongs to Sidon, and dwell there. See, I have commanded a widow there to provide for you. I wonder if Elijah wondered as he was walking to Zarephath. And you know, Zarephath was the hometown of, of Jezebel. It's kind of ironic that God sent his holy prophet to Jezebel's hometown to be cared for. I wonder if, if Elijah was wondering, hmm, God said a widow is going to provide for me. Maybe she's a rich widow who will have a large storehouse of food and water. She'll be, she'll be kind of loaded. She's got a full pantry. I wonder, Lord, what, I wonder about this widow. Verse 10 says, so he arose and he went to Zarephath. And when he came to the gate of the city, indeed, a woman was there gathering sticks. And he called to her and said, please, Bring me a little water in a cup that I may drink. Now that was a high order in itself because there was a drought. Remember, even Elijah's brook Cherith had, had dried up. And he says to her, woman, bring me a little cup of water, please. And look what it says. Oh, I want you to remember this, that God had previously commanded the widow to provide for Elijah. So God had spoken to this woman. She wasn't just any woman in Zarephath. She feared God. She heard God's voice. So listen, it says, and as she was going to get it or get the water, he called to her and said, oh, please bring me a morsel of bread in your hand. So it's kind of like when you're at the restaurant, you've already given your order and the, the waitress is leaving to, to go, you know, put it into the computer so that you get your food and the cook goes to the cook. And she's, you, she's already waited for you to, to, to give your order. And then you say, hey, oh, wait a minute. 
Oh, can you also give me this? Can you change this? Well, that's what Elijah did, except he not only asked her for water, he, now he says, can you bring me a, a little bread too? And she said, listen, verse 12, as the Lord your God lives, I do not have bread, only a handful of flour in a bin and a little oil in a jar. Elijah, I'm down to the very last bit. And see, I am gathering a couple of sticks that I may go in and prepare it for myself and my son that we may eat it and die. We're finally going to die from this famine, Elijah, and that's all I've got. And I was just making it for me and my son. Listen, she was very poor and her pantry was at the very end of its supply. Think about this in relation to stockpiling for the end times. She had lost hope and was preparing her last meal. She forgot that God had spoken to her, that she was going to feed a prophet that he would send to her. Listen, how many promises of God has he spoken to you and everything has reduced, gotten smaller, and the chances of it happening have reduced so great that you've forgotten what God has said? She forgot what God had said. She was at the end. She was desperate. And Elijah said to her, verse 13, do not fear. Go and do as you have said, but make me a small cake from it first and bring it to me. And afterward, make some for yourself and your son. It's a good tune. So do you understand this? She goes and tells her, Look, Elijah, I got, all I got is a very little bit of flour and a very little bit of oil, enough to make one tiny little meal for me and my son. And he said, ah, don't be afraid. Take your ingredients and make a cake and make it for me and bring it to me first. Don't make what you think will be enough for you and me. Just make enough for me. Take what you got and bring it to me. And after you brought it to me, then go back to your flour bin and your oil jar and make for you and your son. Verse 14, for thus says the Lord God of Israel, the bin of flour shall not be used up, nor shall the jar of oil run dry until the day the Lord sends rain on the earth. So she went away and did according to the word of Elijah. See, that's what God calls us to do. Hear his voice and obey it. So she went away and did according to the word of Elijah and she and her household, she and he, Elijah, and her household ate for many days. The bin of flour was not used up, nor did the jar, jar of oil run dry according to the word of the Lord, which he spoke by Elijah. My friend, God is, call, God is calling us to a place where we will trust him when the oil and the flour seem to have come to the very end. And we say, there's not enough. There's not enough to share. There's not even enough for me and my family. What is God saying? He's saying, go ahead and, and store up some food. Go ahead and have a plan and, and be, be reasonable, be wise, be prudent. But prepare your heart. God wants you and I to be willing when everything comes down to nothing, to trust him and to share. When he says share, 
to give when he says give. And he says, guess what? I'm going to begin to provide for you miraculously when you trust me. If your trust is in your stockpile, you're going to be disappointed. But if your trust is in me, I'm going to make what you have, the little you have, continue and continue and continue to supply everything you need. But my friend, we have to get our eyes off of this self-preservation mindset and say, God, you've called me to pour out. You've called me to give. And the church of Jesus Christ that gets this, that in her poverty, when she comes to poverty, will give out of her poverty, will never be poor. She will always be fed. She will always be sustained until the time of that judgment ceases and the rain comes back and everything restores to its natural order. Praise God. Listen, God has a survival plan for us. It's whatever he says, do it. It's create and build a life of prayer. It's give what you've been given, show hospitality, take the gifts you've given and give them. Give them. If we have the mindset of of keep, protect, we're having a carnal and, and fleshly mindset. And my friend, it's natural. I feel it too. But the Holy Spirit is going to say, take what you have, give it to me first, give it to those I tell you to give it to, and then I'll provide for you. That's when the miracle begins. Amen?